a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Utah's best athletes count on flexibility, speed, strength. And the Jazz pick up their 22nd assist. So they count on University of Utah help. Brielle Soleil puts this game away. And so can you. Leading doctors, a world-class environment, award-winning innovation, care to be great. 14 unanswered by the Utes. University of Utah Health, caring for Utah's best and yours. Schedule your appointment now at uofuhealth.org slash care to be great. Crimson Corner. I'm your host and Utah Utes insider for KSLSports.com, Michelle Bodkin. And as you've probably noticed, it's been a while since I've podcasted. There are two reasons for that. One, I was a little overwhelmed with everything going on. It's a little difficult covering three or four sports at the same time. But what an amazing year to be a Utah fan. And I hope you all have enjoyed that. Enjoyed that. And I hope you all will continue to enjoy it with Utah softball a little bit later this week. And then two, I just wasn't loving the product. I took this podcast on without really thinking about what I wanted it to be. And after taking some time to think about it, I'm ready to step back into it and really make it something special. Like most sports reporters, I can break down stats for you, talk about why a play did or didn't work, and if a recruit was a good get or not, blah, blah, blah. But however... What makes me more unique and what really got my name out in this community is my ear for storytelling and building relationships with people to do so in a way that most of my peers can't. That is the spirit I want to bring to this podcast. I want you to get to know some of your favorite former and current student athletes, hear their stories, know what makes them tick, how they are helping our community, and just share some of the goofy, weird backstories that rarely get told because there's no place for them. I want to create a space that is mostly light, informative, uplifting, and useful in a world that can definitely use a little more of those things. I want Crimson Corner to be that creative outlet going forward. So in order to kick things off on the right foot, I've invited former Utah wide receiver turned marriage and family counselor David Kozlowski on as my first guest in honor of May being Mental Health Awareness Month. For those who are unfamiliar with David, he is the founder of Quit Trippin', an organization that aims to help teenagers and young adults not feel so alone with the things they deal with. He's also teaching social health classes at Harriman High and has teamed up with other former youths, Robert Johnson and Kenneth Scott, to put on assemblies at local high schools with OG therapy. David, how are you? 
I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Yeah, no, I I love your story so much. I think part of what makes you and what you're currently doing so compelling, David, is that you've literally made your downfall your superpower. Give everybody some background on how you grew up and what happened during your time playing at Utah. Well, um, first off, I like I said, thank you for having me on. And for your listeners, um, Michelle and I didn't just meet right now. I've known Michelle yeah. for years. <laughs> <laughs> so I know how long you've been working in the sports industry. But what really, I got to give you your flowers right now. What really impressed me about you, Michelle, a long time ago was a long time ago, you wanted to do a story on me. And we met up and I said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you come out and hang out with the kids at Quit Trip in my nonprofit? And you're okay, I'll come out. You know, just think to cover the story. But I tell you what, guys, she kept on coming back. Mm-hmm. She had such a great experience there. She brought her brother. Like it was you, like many former athletes would come in thinking that they're going to talk to kids or like do a, a story. And then they're like, wait a second. I'm one of those kids. I'm just older. Yeah. <laughs> like we all have <laughs> personal life struggles. And so I just want to let your listeners know that I really appreciate you coming out, spending time with those kids. You know, they see a real sports supporter come in, you know, this beautiful woman, a lot of girls will look up to you like, wow, she's so cool. She's got these red high heel shoes on, but yet she's kind of <laughs> swaggy at the same time, you know, like business in the bottom, but, you know, still kind of cool up top, you know, and I just want to thank you for that. <clears throat> I want to thank you for that. And that's the reason why um, I accepted being on the podcast because, I, you know, I, I'm not saying like I get asked me on podcasts all the time, but it's enough where I'm like, ah, like it just doesn't really fit sometimes with me because what they're talking about when I'm talking about, it doesn't really work. But when you told mm-hmm. me that, that what you're doing for your podcast, I was like, heck yeah, I'd love to be on it. So thanks for having me. And then now I can answer your question <laughs> uh, to, to get right through it and give you like the, the, the quick bullet points of it. Uh, I was born and raised in San Diego, more specifically Carlsbad, Oceanside, California area. Um, grew up, uh, the youngest of seven kids, um, all three of my older brothers, in fact, all my siblings, six older siblings, they all had division one athletic scholarships, every single one of them. So it was quite a competitive family. Um, a lot of family drama, a lot of violence, a lot of issues. Um, my, I was, the big secret was I was raised by my grandmother. Mm-hmm. So my grandmother had a baby out of wedlock and in the Hawaiian islands and in a Mormon town in Laie back in the day wasn't really cool to have a baby out of wedlock. And so, you know, she got, uh, she started dating someone right after she had the baby and they got married. One thing led to another. He adopted my biological mom and raised her as his own. And then unfortunately my biological mom, she had a lot of issues with mental health problems with addiction and it just wasn't going to work out for her to raise a baby. So my grandmother came in, raised me, but no one really knew about that growing up. It was a secret that I didn't want to share with people. I was, I was embarrassed and ashamed to be totally honest with you. Mm-hmm. And so um, I lived my whole entire life in the shadow of all these great athletes. Two of my brothers had long NFL careers. And so naturally in a sports family, which a lot of people that play sports at the U, they have siblings and big sports families. You want to live up to that. You want to make your family proud. And so I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be a pro football player too. Well, between you and I, Michelle, I didn't really even like football much. Right. <laughs> I was a surfer and a skateboarder that was just like, I quit playing football for two, three years just to surf, bro. I was like, I just want to surf. And then one day, my brother, who was playing for the Miami Dolphins, my other brother, uh, who was in college playing for BYU, they called me up and they they very unpolitely let me know that I was an idiot. I wasn't going to college for an academic scholarship. And if I didn't get a, high, uh, there's no surfing scholarships. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if you don't get a football scholarship, 
you're gonna be living with mom and dad and stuck in that house. I'm like, hmm, that's a good point. <laughs> so long story short, I started playing football again. I was fortunate enough to get some scholarship offers. One of them was the University of Utah. I didn't want to go to BYU because I wanted them to save the paperwork of having to kick me out. Because at that time of my life, I don't think my lifestyle would have really matched that well with their uh, with their requirements and honor code. So I go to Utah and, you know, Coach Ron McBride, like he believed in me and I went there and and uh, I met great relationships. I met great friends. But it was at that time where um, I fell across some pretty hardships physically. So as a true freshman, I was one of those fortunate true freshmen. It's called fortunate and the true freshman curse. Mm-hmm. Whenever you start as a true freshman, not very likely you're going to end college and it go well because it gets to your head and your ego. Like you get way too much attention. You haven't earned anything. And so that was my case. I started a true freshman and I didn't even know where any of my classes were. Typical situation. Didn't go to school. Didn't take it seriously. Got on all the restrictions. My freshman year, I, I got arrested three times. I I was met with the president, said one more altercation um, and I will be kicked out of the school. Um, I was on probation. I'd go like, Tons of hours of anger management, which I thought was funny because it was really rage management I needed. And uh, it was just it, it was just a n- nightmare for me after my freshman season. One injury led to another. Eventually, um, I had a very crazy injury where I tore a hole in my liver. I got hit against New Mexico. I jumped up a catch pass, got hit with the helmet. Back in those days, it was like just a hard hit. Today, the guy would have been kicked out for the season probably. Mm-hmm. Tore a hole in my liver, almost died of internal bleeding on the field in the hospital for about three or four weeks but what was really a problem and that same situation i had a really bad concussion i'd struggled with concussion since i was three years old up until the university of utah i had a number of them finally after that uh after that liver injury i went snowboarding three months later totally stupid i wasn't supposed to do anything got another concussion end up getting lifelight at the university of utah once they added all my concussions up, I'd had about 15 and I'd been knocked out co- unconscious 13 times. And with concussions, the more you get, the more susceptible. Mm-hmm. Well, now we know CTE and concussions can lead to very, um, it can cause people to be very emotionally and mentally unstable. And that's why as a reporter, you see they'll take a, a helmet from a player. The reason why they take the helmet from the player is because they want to go back and play the game and they're, they're disoriented. They don't know what's going on. Yeah. And uh, the famous one was Luke Keekley uh, for, I think it was for the Panthers like four or five years ago, he got a concussion. They took his helmet from him. He started bawling and crying like a baby on the sidelines. And they were like, get the cameras off him. This is a super alpha male crying uncontrollably. That's what happened to me one time. I was bawling and crying on the sidelines. And it's like, what's going on? Why is this happening? Well, that's why it makes you very emotionally unstable. After that, it happened. Me and my fiance at that time, we went, we broke up. One thing led to another. And I had a very serious suicide attempt. And my football career is over because of concussions. They, I mean, I had a speech impediment. It was bad. Like I would literally, my speech would lock up for five, 10 minutes at a time. I'd have to write notes of people. It's a very serious uh, brain disorder. And I had the speech impediment for 15 years. So Obviously, they did test and like, you can't ever play football again. The top three neurologists in the state of Utah all banned me from playing football. And so that led to my suicide attempt. And thankfully, I wasn't successful. Thanks to the people at the University of Utah and my neighbor who called 911. And I lived down the street from the hospital. They saved my life, pumped my stomach. And when I came out of that, um, Coach Strong McBride, my coach, was there. And he said something that was just life-changing at the time. He said, I know this isn't who you are. It's just what you're going through. And I love you, man. And man, as a young man at 23 years old, not knowing who you are, you know, I mean, it's it's not pretty when athletes are done with their career. 
it can get pretty dark for some guys. It's like, that's your identity. That's who you are. And for me, I had the secret that I was adopted and nobody knew those weren't my biological brothers. So I wasn't about to say, Hey, the reason why I'm not going to the NFL, cause I'm a bastard child. So I kept all the secrets in and it caused me to have issues with addiction and, and then all those concussions. And then one thing led to another, my suicide attempt. But after coach McBride said that I broke down crying and he goes, will you promise me to get help? I know your career is done, but just get help. I love you, man. And I did. And I started seeing a therapist, a counselor, psychologist. One thing led to another, moved back to San Diego from, and I started going to graduate school to do just this exact thing. It completely changed the trajectory of my life, that near death experience. So. I, I mean, you kind of brought it up. Utah was not the happiest experience for you, but I know like a lot no, of no. teammates, <laughs> you know, you have this incredible relationship with this man named Ron McBride, who was the head coach at the time, very ahead of his yeah. time. You know, how important was it that he was your head coach and he chose to coach the game the way that he did at that point in time while you were going through such a dark period in your life? You know, he, for many people such as myself, he was quite a father figure. Um, the reason why I went there as opposed to some other schools is because he made me believe that he wanted me. And, you know, I didn't really have a relationship with my adopted grandfather. I called my dad, but he and I didn't have a relationship. So like many young men that McBride got, you know, we, I felt playing for coach McBride. There's an old TV show called the bad news bears, an old movie. Mm -hmm. And it was like this guy that took all these like wayward kids that nobody liked, that nobody wanted, like we're a bunch of misfit, the island of misfit toys. And McBride, I mean, there's guys on my team that just got out of jail. I was supposed to go to BYU, Arizona State, all these other schools. Like we're all in Utah. I literally didn't even know where Utah was at. I didn't know where the school was at. I knew nothing about it. I just knew about BYU because at the time it was BYU is the big you know brand in, in the state of Utah. But having Coach McBride, he was a regular real guy. He was a hard man though. Like he would tell you straight up, if you suck, you'd be like you suck, get your ass up and go do this. Like he was not soft in that sense. But then afterwards, he put his arm around you, say, you know, I love you, man. Like, I love you. And you're screwing up. <laughs> so it was a very, like, very personal. It was a very personal connection, but his discipline wasn't personal. Mm -hmm. His discipline was always like, you can be better than this. He knew how to deal with mess, messed up kids. And back in that era, you talk from any of the guys from the 90s and the early 2000s in his time, they all say that about McBride. It's like, he just had this ability to look past your idiotic self to look past your dumb 21-year-old antics and talk to you like the guy you could be mm -hmm. as opposed to the guy you were being. And, man, it made guys want to go to war with them. That's why we always outperformed. We we won the big games that we weren't supposed to win. Of course, we lost the games sometimes we were supposed to win. But, like, he was just that guy that just, like, made you believe. And at the end of the day, when he told your parents that you were getting a college degree, he wasn't lying. Like, I got my college degree because he didn't give up on me. I wanted to quit and leave. And he was like, no, like you almost died for the school. You got to get your degree, man. Have that piece of paper. So he was really for myself and many other guys. It was a father figure that most of us just didn't have in our life that we really needed. I also know like a lot of former Utah athletes, you leave Utah thinking you'll never be back, like pedal to the metal. I'm out of here. I might come back and visit on occasion, but I'm not going to actually make this my home. And then all of a sudden you get, you get called back. Uh, it, uh, it does become home again. You know, what, what was it about Utah that drew you back? And when did you know that helping teenagers and young adults was truly your calling? 
Well, first off, when I left here, I didn't say goodbye to anyone. I was completely ashamed and embarrassed because like most players, your career doesn't end the way you thought or wanted it to end. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was ashamed. I was embarrassed. Um, I just wasn't in a good place. I was asked to be the assistant wide receiver coach and not even be a GA, just be start as a coach. And um, I, I just couldn't do it. I, I, I was just look, looking at football and thinking about football was just too painful for me because I didn't really grieve the death of my career. And that's something that I, I help a lot of young athletes with now because the career ends for everybody, mm-hmm. high school, college, pros. But when it ends, you know, it's a tough time. And so I actually said word for word, I've told people, they said, oh, it was your favorite memory of Utah. And a long time ago, I'd say, seeing it in my rearview mirror as I drove on the I-15 headed towards San Diego. And I used to say that because I was bitter and I was hurt and I was tormented by it. But I'll tell you, Michelle, some of the best memories I've ever had in my life. Like, I needed to go through those experiences. I was lucky to not die because horn liver on the field almost died. So I had three near-death experiences when I played football. So I was in a coma tore my liver almost out in the field and then the suicide attempt. And the fact that I was able to leave here, I was bitter for a while, but what brought me back was two major things. One, um, I got set up on a blind date in San Diego um, with this girl and I've never had a blind date that turned into a second date. So I went there not thinking anything of it. And I showed up, I was like, Whoa, this is not what I expecting. I was not, I was like, this is like my dream woman. How is this even possible that she's single? Like what's going on? And, and uh, she and I started dating. Well, she's from Riverton. I literally swore I would never. I've told so many people, will you ever move back to Utah? I, sw- I was like, I swear I will never back- move back to Utah. I swear, I swear. Because I'm a- not only am I from California, I'm a surfer. Like I yeah. surf every single day. So I'm like, Utah, there's no way. Sure enough, one day I told my wife after we got married, I said, I think we need to move back to Utah. She's like, wait, are you kidding me? I swore I'd never move back. And no joke, Michelle, we went to we visited back here one time to see her family and when we came back without sounding cheesy or anything like that something happened where like something was in my chest burning saying you need to move to utah you need to move to utah and i'm not joking when i was anti-utah like i was utah hater for a while not on the school or the football team just my experience and so for a week it wouldn't go away two weeks i told her she's like are you seriously like, well, let's see how this happens because you're acting kind of weird because you surf every day you know there's not ocean there's not good mexican food in utah like especially back in you know 2007 i was like i just feel it sure enough i said no we need to do it when i got here shortly after i got here i started practicing in private practice i thought when i moved to utah i literally told her i go this is probably career suicide Every like families don't have issues here. I'm a family therapist specializing with teens. I literally thought, I'm not joking. I was this naive that I was going to come to Utah and I was going to just be out of business because there wasn't enough people that had issues to help. Cause I need people to struggle for me to be relevant. My job requires teens and families to not get along. And I thought it was perfect here because I lived on the campus. I wasn't a part of the community. Yeah. So I thought, Oh, Mormons, everything. They got it all in the bag. It's whatever. Oh, was I wrong? <laughs> I didn't understand the pressures to be perfect. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand how many people were transplants. Myself came from other states that were like a fish out of water going, whoa, like what's going on? And I didn't understand what was going to be happening with technology and stuff to youth. So when I came back, I started working and it really, it, it, it was the best thing I've ever done in my life. I would not be where I'm at, have the knowledge information I have 
And what I created in Utah had never been done before in the world in, in the nonprofit that you know about. It was a, a support group for teenagers, but it wasn't mental health. It was social health. It was just a socially gathering. And I was told by people, you can't put horny teenagers that have mental health problems together in the same room. Bad stuff's going to happen. And, you know, we dodged a lot of bullets. Nothing bad happened. But what I learned from them is what kids in today's world really need. It was like, you ever seen that guy or those people, one guy in particular on YouTube, he lived with lions for like years. And then he goes back to visit them and they come running up and they start rolling around. He was accepted by them. For me, I was accepted by these kids and I would just sit back and watch and organize it. But I got to like take notes of like, they let me in. And I got to hear (laughs) and learn things that other adults didn't get to be exposed to. I was, I was a pretty good therapist. My clients personally wouldn't tell me all these things, but when you put them amongst their peers, as the saying goes, there's no honesty like the honesty amongst peers. Mm-hmm. And so that really changed my career is just coming to Utah, starting you know a private practice and ultimately starting this nonprofit and putting on these weekly support groups. It, it allowed me to see something that I didn't even know existed. Uh, explain a little bit more about quit tripping, uh, how it came to be and what exactly it is. Yeah, so short version of it, um, one of my clients, um, she had been sexually assaulted by her best friend's dad on a Halloween evening. He uh, got them alcohol and stuff, that type of thing. And she, I had, I had counseled her younger brother and her parents called me up one day in a frantic say, we need your help. Our daughter needs your help. And I was like, sure, okay. She was, a, she was either captain cheerleading squad or on the cheerleading squad. She was a junior in high school, straight A student. I mean, just just kind of one of those popular girls, everything going for her. Mm-hmm. And she came in to see me um, and over her clothes, she just had a blanket and I'd meet with her every week. She would barely talk. She was really traumatized, like the type of trauma that I'd worked with in psych hospitals and stuff. So I had to be very careful and gentle. And also me being a male and her being traumatized by a male, I had to make sure that that was a good fit at first, mm-hmm. but she and I hit it off immediately. And so because we had that connection and I knew her family, they felt safe. But shortly after we started counseling, some things happened and she uh, was very suicidal, had to go to the University of Utah Psychiatric Hospital. When she came out of the hospital, she came to see me for her first visit and she walked in, dropped the blanket and said, David, I got something to tell you. And I was like, first time she'd ever taken off the blanket. I'm like, okay. I'm like, what's going on? She explained to me this experience that happened to her when she was in the psychiatric hospital. She said, I'm in there. Here I am, the preppy, you know, cheerleader girl. And there's kids in there. She called it the Noah's Ark of teenagers. She's like, you got two emo kids, two skater kids, two stoner kids, two jock kids, two kids that look like they're going on a mission. And we're all like, what are we all doing here? But she found out pretty quickly they all could relate to one another, even though they had different backgrounds, even though they dressed differently and they would have never been friends. She was like, I would have never talked to these kids in, in school ever. And I cried with them. I like it changed my life, like all the therapy there, everything else that was happening, the meds that they gave you. She goes, all those things paled in comparison to those experiences in these group sessions. She said, so I have a genius idea. She had this list of things. She goes, we need something like this for our community. It's got to be free. It can't be a depression group, a suicide group, a a sexual assault survivor group. It can't be any of those things, but it's got to help you with depression, anxiety, sexual assault. Yeah. And like all, it's got to help you those things, but it can't be labeled those things. She said, teenagers won't come. Mm -hmm. I talked to all the kids there in the psych hospital. You can't be friends. She was like, a girl was crying 
telling her those deepest things. She's scared to death. I went to give her a hug and I got in big trouble. I said, don't touch her. You can't hug her. You can't help her. And she was like, wait a second. We're having this moment and I can't give her a hug. Mm. So she's like, it was great, but there was something missing. And her opinion, it was that social aspect. She goes, when you're hanging out with your friends and you open up to each other and you bond and connect face to face, oh my gosh, like that's the medicine that we all need is that connection, right? To know we're not alone and we're not crazy. And she goes, so she gave me all these things that we needed that needed to be done in society. She gave me all these, all these things. And she was like, what do you think? I'm like, honestly, that's genius. Like as a professional, I'm like, you're right. Cause I'd done so many group therapies. I'm like, it lacked the actual genuine connection. It was very structured. It was very like today's lesson is on this. There wasn't like this natural organic flow of it with teenagers. They let adults do that. But for some reason with teenagers, they had to keep them in boxes. Right. Mm -hmm. And I go, you're right. She goes, okay, so you'll do it. I'm like, do what? She's like, you'll start this kind of a group. And I was like, first thing I thought in my mind, like, I can't get insurance for this. It doesn't even like, no one's going to insure that because he, I couldn't work under my mental health practice license. I had to just start a social, like a community group, mm-hmm. but yet everyone there had serious mental health issues. And I was like, going, Ooh, but to look at this girl, look at me with this hope. She didn't have her blanket on. She's like, you can do it. Right. I looked at her and I paused for a second. I'm like, hell yeah, I'll do it. Cause that was always my attitude. I'm like, I'm yeah. like, I broke every rule at the university of Utah. I'm like, as a, as a young person, I wasn't really care about being all structured and stuff like that. I'm like, so I'm going to be a coward when this girl made a great point. Everything that she said was very articulate. She thought about it and she was right. Mm-hmm. So she just needed someone that was crazy enough to do it. First five years of doing it, I couldn't get insurance. The only way I got insurance on it was a man whose son struggled with suicide and depression. He insured, he created insurance policies for alcohol distilleries that gave them extra backing that no one ever did. He was if I could insure alcohol distilleries, the least I could do is help teens. So he actually created insurance just for my situation to protect me and the group and my nonprofit at the same time. Then I start getting donors at the very end of it. But for years, I just did it for free. I couldn't charge kids anything because we didn't want to remove, we want to remove the stigma. Mm-hmm. Once we started getting donations, I started to pay for kids that needed help with therapy that couldn't get help with therapy. Because our goal wasn't to replace therapy. It was to be that bridge between the psych hospital and home, the counseling office and your friend group in school. And the kids in a genius way, they had this great idea. They said, this, I go, I don't want to call it mental health. They didn't want to call it mental health groups. Said, what should we call it? And they just said, hey, listen, when we're hanging out with each other, we help each other. When you have strong social connections, all your problems get more manageable. Life is all about relationships, man. Like they're all like, we have better relate. We're, our lives are better because we're making friends with kids, kids that were like cowboy kids make friends with kids who are in the LGBTQ plus community. Mm-hmm. Jock kids, Mormon kids made friends with kids that were like stoners because it didn't matter what they did. It mattered what they were going through and they had compassion and learn about each other's life experiences. So they actually became friends. So they all said, I think we should call it social health. Your social relationships are the best thing to help your mental health. So it's called social health. At that moment, I was like, oh my gosh, these kids are genius. Like all the marketing executives in the world never came up with that terminology. Mm-hmm. They branded the nonprofit. They said, let's call it quit tripping because one of the kids said, I go, let's do a vote. What do you guys want to call it? I'm turning it into a 501c3. I'm not going to name it like 
the way kids believe or like something cheesy that I know adults <laughs> came up with, right? Right. I go, it's your I go, it's your guys' group. What do you guys want to name it? They said they want to name it quit tripping because one kid said, you know, when you're hanging out with good friends and you're tripping out in your head, and then your friend asks you what's going on, and you tell them they're going, No, I've been through the same thing, and they tell you what they've been through. Then all of a sudden, all the stuff you're tripping out on, you kind of quit tripping. And all the kids were like, yeah, quit tripping. And so we start making t-shirts. It looked like a skateboard company. Stan Sock sponsored us. Skull Candy Headphone sponsored us. Van sponsors us to this day because of our branding. So they didn't want anything to do with mental health. But we determined that, and by the way, luckily for us, the research has now proven it. If you have better social relationships, you'll live 8 to 15 years longer. If you have better social relationships, you'll have better physical health because you're more likely to work out or go on a walk if you have a friend to do it with. If you get cancer, you are less likely. You're, women that have breast cancer are 64% more likely of overcoming said breast cancer if they have two to three friends to go to lunch with. Because what happens in those conversations is people want to give up when they have cancer. People want to give up after a divorce. People want to give up after they lose their job. People want to get up, uh, give up after they go through many hard things. But if you have good friends, not only will they not let you give up on your cancer fight, they will do a bake sale and a GoFundMe account, and they'll raise the money for you. And that's what we learn in the groups. And so it was revolutionary because legally, businesses have always had a hard time sponsoring, publicly supporting mental health because mental health can't be measured. A lot of companies are still that stigma. It's like, we sponsor mental health. What's a, what if someone dies by suicide? So they're always iffy about that. But when they looked at my nonprofit and they said, they kept on seeing social health, social health. They didn't even know what social health was. All the attorneys of the big companies said, oh, we'll sign off on that. They didn't even know what it was. But because it didn't say mental health, it didn't trigger any of their red flags or the legal team. Everything was smooth. And they allowed us to go unchecked because they realized you don't have to be a psychologist to know that if you have better friends, you can have a better life. It's just if you have a better if you have better coworkers, you're gonna have better ideas. How much in a in a team is chemistry important? Well, as an athletic reporter, you can say you can have all the best talent in the world, but if you don't have no chemistry, they'll be fighting in the locker room and the talent and the talent, the team that has less talent will beat that team almost every single time. Because they have that's what's so special about the University of Utah with everything that happened to Ty Jordan and every, everything that they've been through. It's like they went from being a family to a close family mm -hmm. they went from being a team to a brotherhood right totally different totally different once you go through fire together blood sweat and tears it's not the same relationship between you and a girlfriend between you and a teammate between you and colleagues at work and so that's really what how everything came about from quit tripping that's and then that segues into the school curriculums to the og therapy everything just started from that 2010 and then it's just evolved in this whole thing where now I'm working with businesses, schools, all these different types of people. Because at the end of the day, everybody knows, like, if you got crappy relationships, that's going to be a long day at work, long day at school. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, so you kind of talked about it's brand. This is branched off into uh, school curriculum, assemblies, uh, a podcast. You know, yeah. you when you kind of decided to take this in a slightly different route that would get more people involved and more people help, what made you decide decide that, uh, you know, looking to other former Utah football players, Robert Johnson and Kenneth Scott to kind of help with that, you know, what what was it about them that you thought could really add to what you're doing? 
Well, yeah. First thing I'll say is everything just kind of, it just kind of happened. Like I didn't try to make any of this happen. It was very, it's the definition of organic. Mm -hmm. So when I was doing those quit tripping groups like yourself, many uh, people in the sports world would come into the groups because I'd have them come sit in. I'd say, Hey, you want to come help teens, local teens are struggling with mental health issues, and this family issues, bullying, drug addiction, stuff like that. They go, yeah. So the people who said that they wanted to come help, and I'm doing air quotes right now to help the kids, they thought they were come to give a speech to talk to them. And this was the biggest trick. They would show up, they'd see 40 chairs in a big circle. I go, okay, you're not talking kids. I just want you to sit, observe, and then you're going to participate as if you're one of the teenagers. And they're always like, wait, what? <laughs> literally within 15 20 minutes they're crying bawling and everyone left were saying two major things one i think i needed this more than the teens mm -hmm. this was for me not just for them and two for two hours i never saw any teenager staring at their cell phone and that is very impressive yeah you have 20 30 40 sometimes huge amounts of teens and no one was on their cell phone because this was the real life Instagram and Snapchat. This was way more in, engaging with their brain because it was face-to-face -face connection. They were hearing deep stories from people connecting on different level. Two of those people that stood out were Robert Johnson and Kenneth Scott. Mm -hmm. They came back. They're, they're, multi, they're repeat offenders. They're like, <laughs> cause man, like they're like, so you're just doing this for free, helping all these kids. Like something about me doing this made them like, dude, I want to do that too. Like, that's freaking cool, man. Like, because they saw that we built this thing, having street credibility with teenagers where they're following you as an athlete, that's what you love to be an example. But when you lose your athletic status, you're longing for that, that influence. You're longing for that. How do I make my story and my life meaningful? Because why did I go through my hurt and pain if I don't get to share it? And so throughout the years, we kept in contact. As you know, I asked Kenneth, I asked, I asked Kenneth to be my co-host on the quit trip and radio show mm -hmm. that ran for about a year and a half on ESPN 700 late at nights. We'd interview any local celebrities, athletes, give them to talk about their depression, anxiety, drug addictions, laugh, eat food. And it was a great thing. And I would have kept that going had um, KSL not offered me another thing. And so I started working with KSL radio and then one thing led to another. And this mom, she and I were the last two people to see her son alive. And this one breaks my heart because the first young person ever lost a suicide that happened back in 2015. And two years later, she said, Hey, uh, I think we should do something together. Now, between you and I, when I did my ESPN radio show and when I did my KSL podcast, the number one downloaded episode was always hers. Mm. Something about this mom who works in crafting on a sports ESPN, we had thousands of views. This was Facebook live when that was a thing. There was comments. I mean, we had hundreds of comments. The ESPN came back there. What the hell did you guys do last night? Or like, why was this place blown up? Like, it was like, it was all this stuff was going on. Then they listen to the episode. They're like, oh, this is deeper than sports. This was something that everyone could relate to. We're scared for our kids. Coaches are the first line of defense. Kids are breaking down to them. These coaches didn't know what to do. So they were learning from this mom, right? And so she said, hey, let's do a podcast together. I'm like, let's do it. We started the podcast. The podcast turned out to me doing a podcast talking about social health curriculum in schools Harriman High School led the country in teen suicides and public school suicides in 2017. One of their administration heard the podcast, hit me up. And they said, can you develop a social health curriculum for our school? Well, social health 
all the tools were developed in 11 years working for these groups weekly with these kids. So I created this unknowingly. So we took those quit tripping groups. I talked about in the podcast. I created New Harriman, you know, uh, curriculum, ran that for three years. And then I reached out to Robert Johnson, Kenneth Scott, and another buddy of mine, Jason Hewlett, who's a Hall of Fame entertainer and motivational speaker here in Utah, travels all around the world. I talked to them. I said, hey, guys, I go, you know, all these social health tools that I've been teaching you just in private conversations throughout the past years? I go, yeah. I go, why don't I certify you? Let's turn this into a business where we go to high schools and we go to businesses, like middle schools, high schools, and businesses, because really – Pretty two big staples of any community is the education and the businesses that like make money for this for the cities, right? Right. And so they said, let's do it. We started brainstorming on it. We came up with um my my term for what we called it was for years, people would ask me, you know, in my profession, they have all these weird terminologies like, what type of modality of therapeutic treatment do you provide? Is it cognitive <laughs> behavioral and all these big fancy words? And I don't like to use big fancy words, Michelle, because I usually use them wrong and look stupid. <laughs> I like use them out of context. I, I don't know what they really mean. So I've always said, I'm not going to use big words. I'm just going to talk to teens. Well, I told people, they said, what type of therapy? I'm like, I don't know. One day joke. I'm like, I do OG therapy. <laughs> and the person laughed because they knew what the word OG is. They, they laughed. They're like, you kind of are like that. Like, I mean, I have a Polish last name and I have a drop of Polish in me. I'm Samoan and Mexican. Like, yeah. that's what I am. <laughs> and so they're like, you are kind of like that weird, like street, like counselor because I'd been there through all my personal experiences, but then I'd worked in mental health for 20 something years. Mm -hmm. So I put it together for my experiences. Some of the best therapists aren't even therapists. They're your coach. They're your teacher. They're your uncle, your auntie that just takes that time to say, like McBride said, I love you. And you're an idiot. Mm -hmm. like, those two can be true, right? Those are the people who I listen to more than my mental health professionals sometimes. So Kenneth Scott, Rojo, and this other guy have such a unique talent. And what's special about them is they did this for free with me just because they were like me. They're not money motivated. They're not doing things for what do they get in return. They always volunteered to help out youth, and they still work with youth. So when I hit them up about this, they said, let's do it. We started doing high schools uh, just to kind of get our feet wet. We started doing the podcast. And then now it's turned into we're doing high schools, middle schools, but I just met with a large company here. We've talked to two very big companies in the state of Utah that now are hiring us to come do similar presentations for their companies, but then now installing in actual policies and procedures how to enact social health in their organizations. For example, 1-800-CONTACTS, who I've been so blessed to have a great relationship with them for years, they actually have a social health committee and, and part of their company now. The city of Pleasant Grove, they have social health initiatives. They do social health reporting in their in their newspapers. So people are starting to see that we have a mental health system to help people with pre-existing problems. We have all these other systems, but we don't have a system to what I believe our society is struggling with the most. Our society is socially unhealthy. Mental health issues come majority from not having good relationships or knowing or knowing how to deal with trauma from bad things and, and heal from that. You know, kids that quit tripping, uh, doing the podcast. Um, the social health curriculum, all these things. I just started to figure out that, you know, our society is becoming socially unhealthy. The increase of drug addiction, suicides, all different types of mental health is because we really do not know how to interface with each other like our ancestors did. You know, societies and people and communities, they've always had differences and haven't gotten along. 
And, um, you know, that's, that's something that they had to figure out and work out. And I think our society is doing a really good job in one sense of trying to become closer, more inclusive and more connected. The problem is with technology and not people, people not having as much face-to-face interaction, it's, it's kind of ripe for more polarization because, you know, you're, you're, you're less likely to have the same type of argument with someone face to face that you grew up with than you would through a keyboard or on a social media app. And so as a mental health professional, I just been telling people for a long time, like, hey, this is not really what our society is going through is not so much a mental health issue as it is really more, you know, a social health issue. Mm-hmm. And that's why that's why I'm, I believe so much that the research is accurate when it says, Hey, you know, like you're going to have a better life. Like I said, you're going to live longer. All these great things are going to happen if you figure out how to build, maintain, and improve better relationships. So what I'm having my team on OG Therapy do is just taking some people that I really trust, that I know that they have the right heart, and I'm just teaching them all my 24 years of experience so that they don't have to go to graduate school, so they don't (laughs) have to, you know, jump through all those hoops because I think you need to have like, if someone's really good, if you have a band and someone's really good at singing, well then let them be the singer. If someone's really good at guitar, have them play the guitar. Now I want people to do it their best at. And even though guys like Robert Johnson and Kenneth Scott were really exceptional football players, they're better people. Mm-hmm. Like they're just better men than they are even football players. Completely concur. I mean, they've both been friends, friends of mine for a long, long time. I know, right. You know them personally. Rojo, Rojo knew me when I was 19 years old and a freshman in college. Uh, and, and at a point in my life when I wouldn't even talk to people, I mean, literally would not talk to people. <laughs> um, so he, he knows me from a very, very different period of my life than where, where I currently am now. So, uh, yeah. longstanding relationships and obviously they've helped me a lot so I can understand how they potentially can help a lot of other people too. Uh, you know, look, looking at this, well, actually let's talk about this. So it had been a few years since I'd seen you uh, a couple months ago, yeah. I actually dropped in and checked out one of these assemblies. And I think what stood out the most to me, and it was very much like, you know, the smaller quit tripping groups is, uh, you know, you, you get these kids coming in and you could kind of see like, some of them were like, oh man, like an assembly, like assemblies are always so lame. Maybe, maybe I should like, I should have maybe skipped this. I maybe should have skipped this. Yeah. I threw them in and it was like, you could see the shift between, I don't know, do I really want to be here and sit here for an hour and listen to these guys to these kids wanted, you know, to switch social media with you, take pictures. Like what, what do you think the secret is to getting these kids to really engage and pick up what you guys are putting down? You remember when you were younger? Sometimes it was easy to look at adults like they just didn't understand. Mm -hmm. They just didn't get it. But every now and then you would come across an adult who did. That was like finding gold. When you had one teacher or one coach or an older relative or someone that you could look at and be like, they're an adult, but they understand me and what I'm going through. Like a tractor beam, those people will suck you in. Mm -hmm. Teens are the most curious beings on the planet. See, the adults, in my in my opinion, that struggle connecting with teens, are looking at teens from a like boss employee relationship. 
Like I have the power, I'm here. So because of that, you need to listen to me because you need to respect me like I had to respect my adults above me, even though a lot of them were idiots and said weird things and weren't really the best examples themselves. But you need to listen to me just because I'm older than you. So when teens come across adults that aren't trying to force a relationship with them, that aren't trying to tell them, well, you know, when I was your age, I did this, that, and the other, or adults trying to just military style, like authoritarian, like tell them you need to do this or you're an idiot. When they meet adults that are like talking about things that just like something inside of you is like, listen more, Mm -hmm. listen more. So that assembly you came to, we did two assemblies. Mm -hmm. The first one and then the second one was even more packed for the first one. The principal gave us a really good um, compliment. The principal said, so a lot of kids left the first one. They skipped their next class and they came back to the second one. And they told us, they told the principal, the word got out the first one that they should go to the second one. And so kids that skipped the first one came to the second one. That's a very interesting thing because having said that, you know, teens are the most curious beings on the planet, social media, Facebook, Twitter, and all these platforms, they should be paying teens. They were the ones that grew all this. If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have a lot of the things that we have in our society. And so when teenagers feel that an adult not only connects with them and relates to them, but could have wisdom to share with them, they will listen and you don't have to force them to listen. That's why we call it OG therapy, because by definition, the original term OG meant original gangster. Mm-hmm. Like that was a terminology used in LA street gangs. But what OGs really were in the street gangs, in the literal term of it, it was the gang members, males and females, that had been in trouble, gone to prison, came back, and they lived to tell the tale what you should and shouldn't do anymore. In fact, in street gangs, OGs have the highest ranking. Everyone, all human beings know we need generals. We need captains. We need people that can guide us and direct us away from our impulses and away from our reactions that can calm us down. And so not a bad, I couldn't think of any better example of, you know, Kenneth Scott and Rojo and my other friend, Jason, they, they, they're just that person in their real life. People listen to them because they're not trying to force you to listen. They know who they are. They act accordingly. They show respect to everybody. If you go with Rojo or K Scott, I mean, they're the type, they're the unique type of guys, like much like myself, our friends are like 31 flavors. Like we have all different types of friends. Me and K Scott, we laugh because in college, he was very much like me. I'd have guys that were like never knew an athlete in their life. I'm giving those guys nicknames, bringing them to parties with me. They had cool social experiences. This one kid, I told all my friends on the team because he was a super skinny, chronic kid. Chronic kid, I go, it's my friend uh, Kung Fu Ben. And my friend looks at me, I'm like, just shut up, just go with it. My buddy's like, Kung Fu Ben, I'm like, yeah, he's really bad at it. Kung Fu, he's a master of martial arts. The kid couldn't fight his way out of a wet paper bag. <laughs> and they were like, oh, what's up, Kung Fu? And so they all start calling him Kung Fu Ben, come friends with him. They, he's like, I'm walking down the, the campus and guys like, Kung Fu, what's up? All his friends thought he's super cool. And he asked me one day, he goes, Cause why did you give me a nickname and say this stuff? I'm like, because I liked you. You're a good kid and you're quiet. You didn't have any friends. So I thought I'd just change your life around by introducing you to some cool people. He's like, you literally changed my life in college because you just took me on your wing. And it was just, no one did that. Like for me, I wanted to do something for him that very few people I did for me, you know? And so that's what OG therapy really is. It's like, hey, we've been there and done that. 
We want to help you learn from our mistakes. There's that old saying, you have to learn from mistakes, but no one says they have to be all your mistakes. True. You can learn from other people's mistakes. In fact, that's actually the better way to do it. So ideally, you know, in the next year, where, where do you see all this going? Where do you see it growing to? Well, I'm very excited because we're, we've built something that we believe has a lot of legs. It can really grow. Mental health really has a very short ceiling because by definition, mental health, you have to have mental health problems to receive mental health treatment. Same thing with like businesses, same thing with schools. There's got to be a major problem before they react to it. The way I'm looking at it and the way our team is looking at it is we want to be what's called a tier one intervention. We want to give tools and help to everybody so that they don't ever get to a place of what I call a stage three or stage four mental health situation. In cancer, we all know stage four in cancer, you do not want to be diagnosed with stage four cancer. Like that's not when you want to find out. The sooner you can find out when you have cancer, the greater the opportunities for treatment and recovery. No, it's no different with mental health or other types of issues. I've never heard an autopsy report of a person that shot up a school. And I'm being dead serious. Never heard a person that shot up a school had friends that was liked and popular. You know, as kids, when they become more suicidal, it's not because they necessarily want to die. They just can't imagine, imagine living a life where they just don't offer anything to anyone else, where they're not meaningful. They don't matter enough. So where we see this going is we want social health to be in every school, in every community, in every business. As a country and a society, we have physical health because someone a long time ago, people a long time ago determined that without physical health and creating a system for it, a lot of people are going to die. Same thing, why we created mental health. But- my favorite saying from Einstein is no problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that had created it. So mental health can't, the mental health epidemic can't be solved by mental health professionals because they didn't create the problem, but they're looking to fix already pre-existing problems. It's not about prevention technically. Now don't get me wrong. Mental health is now trying to do a lot for that. Education can't create, can't stop the bullying problem that happens at school Online tech communities, they can't, they can't solve the technology problem because they were the same level of people that created it. I'm not making those people to be bad, but do you get where Einstein's coming from? It's like you really can't take the people that unknowingly created this problem. They can't undo it, right? So the way I look at it and the way our organization looks at it is that if there's mental health to help problems with mental health, there's physical health to help problems with physical health, in 2023, more than ever, we need help with social health. And we really believe that this is its own thing. I'm not taking credit for it. I'm not like I created social health. I just want people to consider in their organizations. That's how diversity, um, equity, inclusion, that's how all these things started. They go, there's a need for it. We believe social health actually benefits mental health and diversity, you know, inclusion and equity and equality, because this is an actual system with tools of how to get to those places it's not a platform. It's not. Um, uh, it's not a. It's it's not a, a movement. It's standards to how to do something. Mm-hmm. Just like in education, imagine if you called math a different name in every single school. Well, how could you measure it? How could you test it? How could you move from one school to another? We had to agree there has to be one name, and it was math. 
has to be one name that's English. So because we have the same terminology for everything, we can grow and scale it. That's what we believe social health is. It's scalable to the sense that it can help our society with what our society needs that was in the blind spots that just wasn't being addressed. And to think about it, there was a time before uh, physical education came into uh, schools, there was no physical education. The story behind that was our U.S. government determined after World War One and then after World War II when one-third of the U.S. military that was drafted was unfit to serve, they specifically said, the story goes, we determined that we need to put money initiatives into every single school so everybody taught physical education to protect ourselves from our enemies. My argument is, I think today we need to create a system to protect ourselves from ourselves. No great civilization ever fell because of their enemies they fell internally. It started in the family, then it goes to the community, then it goes to the states, then it goes to the government. All that trickle-down effects, you break up the family, you break up the community. All the research has been telling there's less community involvement, less family involvement since late 1980s all the way until now. Is that by accident that we're having this social problems that we're having? No, I don't think it's by accident at all. So we can't just have other things try to create the solution. We got to create something totally new. We believe social health is that. Now, if we're wrong and if it never gets, we never get the plan off the ground, I sure as hell know we're going to try our best. And and so far we're doing our little piece. You brought this up a little bit earlier on. Uh, It has been a rough couple of years, not only within Utah athletics and some of the things that have gone on in the building there, uh, but just in the world. And I realize this is such a broad topic and and trying to do a one-stop shop mental and social health type of thing doesn't exactly work. But for those that maybe are currently struggling, what's some basic advice you can give? Well, that's true. It's hard to give a, a one general thing. But, but I can tell it to you this way. I like to give little one-liners to help people like remember, right? Mm-hmm. The kryptonite to depression, addiction, pretty much anything that ails you is connection. The opposite of an addiction uh, stated by Johan Hari, a, a great, um, uh, a great uh, author, he stated well, so the opposite of addiction is connection. And I believe the kryptonite, to all those negative things is connection. Human beings were hardwired to connect. We've evolved to be the most dominant species on this planet, not because we're bigger, stronger, faster, and had sharper teeth or bigger claws, because we started to take on the, the thoughts and feelings of other people to work together. Connection creates the best innovation. You're going to have better ideas. You're going to come up with better ways. And unfortunately, what creates the best connection is a shared struggle. When you feel like you're isolated, when you feel like you're alone, you feel like nobody can relate to you, you are now on a trajectory to isolation and loneliness. Your body, and this is science, people can Google this for themselves, your body starts to prepare for death if it has no struggle. If 9-11 taught us anything, it taught us that we are capable through hurt and pain to be at our best. We're capable of putting aside our differences. When the Las Vegas shootings happened a few years ago, I saw tons of videos of people jumping on other people, helping other people. I did not see one video of saying, let me help you. Wait, who did you vote for? Oh, screw you. I'm not helping you. People don't stop helping in crisis when we're sharing the struggle together. So if you're going through a struggle, you don't have to go through it alone. 
whether it's a therapist, whether it's a coach, whether it's a friend, you have to start expressing what's going on with you through groups online, however you do it. If you can connect, it releases the hold of all the hurt and pain that's telling you that you are by yourself and you, nobody wants you, nobody likes you. That's not the case. You have to find your own cult. You have to find your own tribe. You have to find your own community. And if you can't find it, well, then do like I did with Quit Tripping. Just create it. If people are interested in what you do and want to support or get involved, where where should they go to get more information? Yeah, they can go. One place is OG Therapy Inc. So OG, just OG Therapy Inc. dot com. Uh, that's uh, you can contact us about if you if you're interested in knowing more about our. So we do high school and middle school speakings, and we do business presentations and business trainings where we teach social health tools. Um, we also do for parent nights. I, t- I do teacher training as well. So if you want to like to know more about how we can come to your community, your school, your business, that's how you can find us. Um, for me, on I, I have an Instagram account. I don't use it as a personal Instagram account. Uh, we just put up all of our reels of our podcast up there. And that's um, just David underscore K-O-Z-L-O-W-S-K-I underscore. Uh, I have a TED Talk that's under my name on YouTube about parenting relationships. Um, I mean, there, there's uh, the social health curriculum. So socialhealthcurriculum.com is where you can learn about my curriculum where we teach all these tools. Um, we're excited that it's growing in other schools. I don't sell my curriculum per se to people. If they're interested in it, then I they hire me to help them build their own curriculum for their school. That way it can be their own thing. I'm not trying to just sell it to them and then leave. Like I really want them to have social health in their school and a curriculum is one way to do it. So that's how they can find me. Awesome. Well, David, I appreciate you jumping on to share your story and what you're doing in the community. It's helping a lot of people and making a big difference. Well, thanks for thinking of me, Michelle. And thanks for reaching out to me. And I'm glad that you're you're up and running doing the podcasting and telling stories because people were we're storytellers, man. We love great stories and we love to tell great stories. And so thanks for giving me the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. All right, guys, that was former Utah wide receiver turned social health specialist, David Kozlowski. That's right. (laughs) That will do it for me this week. You have been listening to the Crimson Corner. And until next time, go Utes. Go Utes. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do? 
in the face of an international disaster decades in the making. That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.